The subject for the evening talk is a breath of freedom. We are possibly reasonably aware of the divergences of views and positions about the world which we live in. And sometimes we see the differences and the immense number of debate, debates which take place about the ways of looking at the world, looking at the human being's relationship to her or his existence. And sometimes we find an opportunity for some reflection and then we begin to observe not so much the differences between various views and standpoints, but also the, the similarities, the common thread suddenly strikes one running through these uh, beliefs and ideologies. And one of those which occurred to me recently was the view that we have about ourselves and about our past and how this influences and shapes our actions and our perceptions. We might say, in looking at our society and our relationship to it, that society generates a message, a very potent message, a form of, I would say, indoctrination, which says to us, we are not okay as we are, but we are okay through what we accomplish. Through achievement and success becomes the means to establish ourselves as being a full person, a complete person, a person who has some sense of status or position in society. And so a message has been generated out to us in which we begin with the standpoint of being dissatisfied with ourselves, but through doing this, that, and other, we will become somebody who will not only, which will not only give ourselves some measure of self-respect, but also will get it from others. And it seems that this message from society, I think, rather easily touches vulnerable places in, inside of ourself of unrest and dissatisfaction. We see this, too, with orthodox forms of religion. Reli orthodox religion has told us in various ways that we begin as sinners and only through some significant event taking place in, in our life, can we go from being a sinner to being pure, from being a sinner to being with God, to being born again, or whatever the language is. And I think there's a certain similarity of view and standpoint there. I think also it similarly applies in the world of psychotherapy, not in all cases, but frequently the view which seems to come across is that 
we have problems in our past, we have unresolved issues in our past, and particularly in some forms of Freudian analysis or whatever, there are deeply rooted issues. In order to be okay in this world, these have to be resolved. And once that occurs, then we are whatever language is that is to describe a seasoned person, a mature person, a, a grounded person, a psychologically healthy person, or whatever it might be. One has a similar in other traditions, in, in the Buddhist tradition as well. We begin with the view that we are suffering, or that we are ignorant, or that we're blind, and we'll go from this particular viewpoint to a change, a transformation, in which we'll become enlightened, in which we'll become liberated. And I think the common denominator in these and many other views which are foisted upon us is that we start off somehow lacking, somehow missing, and from this position which we rather easily identify, we have to go through some process or some significant event to stop being like that and to be something else. And I think it's very unfortunate. I think it's an ongoing human tragedy, in fact, that we do identify so quickly with some aspects of ourselves, some vulnerability, some self-rejection or blindness or sinfulness or whatever. And upon that basis, remember, on that basis, it begins to determine our actions, our relationship to life, our values, our perceptions, and the whole gamut of relating to existence. When we have strongly identified with this negative perception of ourselves, which may quite understandably be born out of certain experiences, be born out of certain beliefs of what we have been told about who and what we are. But when we have identified ourselves in this way, then we're propelled in the need to try to do something about it. And then we receive the messages from society, through um, education and career. We receive the re messages from the religious authorities, the, the psychological authorities. Yes, you are like this. Yes, this is your state of mind. Yes, change can come about. And I certainly am not in any way disputing the potency of that and the remarkable capacity of human beings for transformation. I'm just questioning the underlying ideology. And I think it's very easy for us 
to be so identified with this ideology which has been impressed into consciousness that when sometimes we look at the past we can't see anything but pain. What stands out for us are the unhappiness, the, the, the conflicts, the repressions, the denials, the lack of love, the confusions. And we very easily have got ourselves into a pattern of looking in that way. And I think it's rather unfortunate that we've imprisoned ourselves so easily in looking at what's painful, what's unsatisfactory, what isn't beautiful, what isn't joyful. So we would like us in our mindfulnesses and in our, and our observations to find ways of considering and reflecting in which we're not starting off with this standpoint. We're not going to buy in to what society, religion, psychology, or whatever the persuasion tends to tell us and which we tend to grasp onto. Let's start really afresh. Then we might ask, well, what has all this got to do with uh, mindfulness of breathing and being in touch with the breathing experience? I think one aspect that we can consider here is that a number of people in the uh, retreat here will have a perception, and understandably, uh, from direct, from experience, of being in situations in your home life, in your daily life, of pressure, stress, uh, pain, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual. And one feels that as one comes into spending the first day here, that one is part of the reason for being here, maybe as the important part, understandably, is to reduce some of this, to actually reduce the stress or the pressure or the anxieties which are very, in a very unsatisfactory way affecting the quality of one's life. The very fact, the very intimation that one senses, just this alone, that one senses change can come about, that transformation can come about, is, I think, a wonderful, immediate way of paying respect to oneself. Just the possibility that this can happen. So when we come into a retreat, for a number of people, you will have had the thought of specific areas of interest, of issues which you wished and hoped to resolve during this retreat. And the silences and the stillnesses, the meditative forms do, I believe and hope, contribute to this. But, you'll notice many of these talks will have buts in, and uh, please bear with me. And my but with regard to this is 
do we have to make this the primary purpose for being here? Acknowledging the pressures, the stresses, the tensions, the issues about staying with one's lover, leaving one's lover, staying in the house or moving, staying in the job or moving, staying in the studies or moving out of it, staying with oneself or moving out of it. Whatever the conflict <laughs> which may uh, be arising, that might be, as they say, a kind of primary mover for being here. I wonder if we dare consider that and any benefits with regard to those issues and conflicts as rather periphery to what's taking place here. In other words, though these issues are significant, and I don't want to underestimate in any way at all, please don't misunderstand me, that though these issues are important in one's life, and they do matter to oneself, could we dare consider them as not being the mainstream? That the resolutions of those issues can come about through other ways of looking. So let us look at the breath for a moment. Today, being the first day that we are uh, here, we spend some time being mindfulness, giving some mindfulness to the breath. We emphasize being in touch with the whole of the breathing experience, right from the very beginning through to the end of the breath. The very high probability is, if you have managed to experience two successive breaths in a row today, I would regard this as um, an unparalleled achievement. <laughs> this should give one an immense sense of self-worth. Some people will have not yet found their nose, let alone found the breath. But nevertheless, the interest is there, and who knows for tomorrow. <laughs> so there is the actuality of taking the breath as a primary object. Generally, and there's much to be explored in just taking the breath. Why choose the breath? We're constantly being told of various solutions to our problems, sometimes personified in a beliefs, sometimes personified in a, an authority, a guru, or a specialist in some way or other, sometimes personified in a deity or a particular figure of, or book of past or present. And we have been told and many times, follow this person, this book, this tradition, this, that and the other, and this will be the answer. And one could very easily and in understandably say, oh, we've dispensed with that, now the breath becomes the miracle. This will be the answer to all things for all people. I doubt it. But why take the breath? Why use the breath? One aspect of the breath is that it's immediate. It can, and for some of us does, serve as a remarkably useful anchor point. 
to remember to breathe through the varieties of experiences. Here we go, another but. But, and this is, yet we find the amount of actual concrete time today we've been with the breath has been minimal. And that's exaggerating it. And the movement has been possibly everywhere else but. So in that, though there is an interest and a motivation to be with an object called the breath, the actuality is possibly that everything else seems to have been intruding. And what very easily occurs for us is we grasp onto one thing. Please, all our life has been revealed to us today. Please don't make no mistake about it. We've grasped onto one thing, understandably, to work with that, and everything else may be appearing to be stopping one from having that access. The wandering mind, the fantasies, the daydreams, the knees, the shoulders, the back, the person who is sniffling their guts out beside one, the snoring person, the person who comes in late, the person who leaves early, the carpet, the colors, the lights, uh, whatever it might be. All of these movements which take place for us appear to be stopping oneself from being with what one wants to be with. The stronger the desire to be with the breath, the greater the possibility is of noticing the difficulty of what it is going on when one isn't with the breath. Do you understand? The stronger the wish, I really want to sit, I really want to be with the, the breathing, the more you will notice what it is to not be with the breath. The focusing on one is the invitation to the other. Say la vie. One hopes, and this is where religious faith begins to come in, that it will increase from 1% today to 2% tomorrow. And if it can just increase by 1% per day for the next week, then one will feel one is making progress. I don't know if we have to regard it, look at it like that at all. I don't know if we have to regard trying to make a cess of our meditations at all. I don't think we have to regard going from it's terrible, it's bad, it's worse, it's horrible, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm useless, to one of moving through to something else. Even the lights are not reliable. So in our relationship to the events of what is taking place, in the mind which is moving, which is drifting, can there be something of use in that? If we're just experiencing here being with the breathing and disregarding everything else, I think we miss the point of being here. Understand? If we miss 
if we just focus on the breathing, which is a tiny, a small percentage, if we're lucky, of being here, and disregard the range of other experiences, I think we've missed the point. Since so much else may be going on, in some way or other, it does matter for us. Because it's going on, it has to matter. So can we bring to the situation not so much an idea of improving and getting better at it and being more successful, which is the indoctrination we've had for far too long. Can we bring to the meditative work a work which says, what's actually going on? The breath contributes to us being aware of the not-breathed experience. That's its purpose. Sometimes, as a person pointed out in one of the small groups today, how we tend to have a view in life that life is for eternity. Sometimes in our more intelligent moments we don't really think that. As someone said to me uh, recently, I, my greatest wish in life is to live for eternity. So far, so good. <laughs> and sometimes this view arises with us as though we have an indefinite amount of time, both globally and personally. And this view <coughs> with us truly needs to be questioned, because this view of continuity and all that projects into the future is really holding us up from really looking at today. And I was particularly reminded of this this evening when this, um, the uh, newspaper, the, uh, which comes out twice a year of the, the Dharma uh, community, The Inquiring Mind, which a number of you will know and be familiar with. And the uh, Inquiring Mind has in it three uh, obituaries. People that some of us know and, and were friends of ours and people who have sat in this room with um, myself and Henrietta uh, over the years. And one of those people who, is, uh, who died earlier in the year, Carol, Carol Boss, she said only last year at the end of the um, um, retreat, she said, I've been coming here for several years Six or seven years ago, she said, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, cancer. I was told it was incurable. I was told that I had perhaps a year to live at the most. And she said, I went through the various treatments which are available, both in uh, allopathic and uh, alternative medicines, and particularly the use of meditation and uh, uh, resources and support of a Chinese a herbal doctor. 
And she said something which I have, from time to time, on retreats, have quoted to other people in other parts of the world. She said, I've been sitting here and walking here, and she said, my recollection of my experiences through this retreat and the previous retreat is that my mind only knows one thing, and that is to chatter. I've, she said, I've had no concentration, no meditative states, no profound experiences or whatever. And yet, she said, in spite of my unconcentrated mind and my chattering mind, something deep has gone on inside of me which has changed many things and in part I contribute to the fact that several years later I am still walking and breathing on the face of the earth. So in spite, I think, somewhat at the peripheral of our mind, of our degree of concentration and lack of it, I think something goes on with these situations which may possibly touch us in, in other ways. And rather similarly, one of the other people who's, who gave a talk, John Hobby, and John Hobby also died earlier in the year, he died from AIDS. He had said before he died, as he had been such an immense support of the, the Spirit Rock project, he said, I feel so committed and so supportive of this project, even though I will never see a brick go on the land. And he says in this, in here, he said, he's, he tells a story from the time of the Buddha. And in this story, he remarks how it is said, Gautama Siddhartha saw suffering, saw aging, saw, saw death. And these messages came to, as it were, shape the, the Buddha's view, Gautama's view. And John says, the real point of this story is that these apparently oppressive problems inconveniences, curses, are the gifts of the God. They are the gifts of the gods. They are sent to awaken us to our true nature, to awaken us to a more profound and accurate understanding of the world, to a clear sense of the way things are. And I think our day, and whatever the constitution has been of our day, whatever the degree of mindfulness and loss of mindfulness through our day, or whatever's been unfolding through the sitting and the walking, that is, for us, the way things are. Sometimes we regard it, we think about it as being terrible or oppressive or whatever. But that's so easily the way we interpret what's taking place. Can we just breathe while we are here? Can we just experience what's taking place while we are here without using it as a kind of way of getting on our case? It's the way things are. It's the way things are unfolding. In mindfulness of 
breathing and care and attention to the breathing. Here we are faced between these two worlds, polarities of the birth and the death, and our experience of breathing all the way through this. Sometimes we lose the motivation to be with the breath. Why be with the breathing? What, what, how can I make the breath the anchor? And it rather reminds me of an old story which they're fond of telling in India. And it, one of the stories which has got generated from one generation of Dharma speakers to another. And this generation, uh, this story goes of the person sitting in the boat and the teacher said to this person, what does it mean to be focused? What does it mean to be mindful? And the person said, well, I don't know. I do this practice and I do that practice and I just can't get focused. I just can't get one-pointed one at all. And so going across in this rowing boat, so the teacher grabbed hold of his, his uh, pupil, threw the person straight into the water, held the head right under the water for half a minute or so. When the person surfaced, the teacher then said to the pupil, what was on your mind when you were un under the water? And he said, one thing, I just wanted to breathe, just wanted <laughs> breath, I wanted air. That's all I, nothing else is there, it's just air. And I think sometimes in our relationship to breathing and the focusing with the breathing, I think we need to give it not that degree of focus, as I pointed out, but a relationship to it. <laughs> Otherwise, Anyway, we're going to that. So, but a relationship to the breathing, which begins to understand breath. See, I get concerned with the teachings and with when people are listening. That it becomes a kind of technique. It becomes a, a technique in which. The old pattern of success is the number of breaths I observe. And there are often techniques which are done to, to emphasize that. And if I really, I, I count up to ten. One, two, up and down, three. And this becomes a point where one gets to ten. Someone came in one of the retreats and said, Christopher, I counted without a pause, 394 breaths. <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> so in the relationship to the breathing experience, it's not being mindful, but as Eric uh, often likes to point out a very useful theme here. It's in a way being mindful and heartful. Just mindful and heartful is bringing a, a sense to it. 
bringing a sense to the experience. And this is a, a sense of just sitting quietly on the earth, mindfully breathing in and breathing out. Just allowing this sustaining element which sustains all of humanity to be really sensed and felt and appreciated. It's not, for me, it's not a method of concentration. I'm not concerned with concentration. But just feeling the experience, being receptive to the influence of the air element as it touches the cellular life, as it stimulates and awakens the cells. As the, the, body, the, the body is a small universe, as it expands with the inhalation, as it contracts, and this rather wondrous organic process taking place. That's far more beautiful than being and getting concentrated. So even if it's just one single breath in the day where one, has, where one is sitting and with that receptivity to the breathing experience and just feeling the life, the organic unfoldment, the process, just one breath would be a wonderful use of the day. Never mind everything else that goes on the rest of the day. Just touch it for a moment. Those, they're, they're gems of life. And sometimes we, we just, in the moment of doing that, we just can't sense the significance of it. We, sometimes we say, okay, I'll just sit. And during the course of the sitting, I'll just allow one breath to allow myself to be really receptive and just see it through from the beginning right through to the end. Our thought may not be able to make any sense of it. The thought may be saying, well, what am I doing this for? What am I getting out of it? This is all social conditioning here. What am I getting out of it? What's it giving me? And sometimes it's not the frame of reference what, of what I'm getting out of it, what, I, what it's giving me. And that requires a faith. It requires an immense faith to be so devoted to the present, to the breathing, to the here and now, and not knowing what it's all about. And I would like us to regard the non-breath experiences in the same way. To regard that too as an unfoldment. To regard that too, in a way, as a presentation of life, as an offering. During the periods of sitting, and being with the breathing, I think the sense of that is a breath of freedom. I think the giving ourselves some time and space just to sit and breathe is genuinely a breath of freedom. And in the moments of sitting and just being with the breath, as a breath of freedom, one of the important things to appreciate here is how much is not present. 
just how much is not present, just how light we actually are in the, in the establishing of a single breath. All this accumulated knowledge, where is it? Where is it in the breath? All this vast repertoire of experiences, painful and confusing and conflictful and fearful, where, are, where is it with the breath? Where is the career? Where is that? What's, what happened to that? Where is all the countless relationships that have been formed? Where are the fears of relationships that have been formed? Where is the vast repertoire of identities of self which have been built up and which one has become so involved in? What happened to all of that? So when we speak of a breath of freedom, that breath of freed freedom is a breath of freedom in which in that moment, nothing else has any substance. All the beliefs, all the religions, all the philosophies, all the ideologies, all the systems, all of that, in the moment of just one breath in and one breath out, has just, has no presence. Has no function, has no purpose, has no appearance, And I think the breath in that respect is a wonderful anchor and an important resource because what it can contribute to is that it dispels the myth of continuity. It questions, just through the breath, the whole build-up of I and my, the substance view and continuity, because one single breath with awareness and mindfulness totally given to it liberates one immediately from so much of what is called I and self. So as I say, I regard the breath as being a wonderful agent, a wonderful resource, a way of cutting through lots of notions that we are carrying around about I and continuity. And if we can follow that, if we can understand that and allow ourselves to experience that deeply, our relationships to work and study and knowledge and past and present and future might well undergo change. And in the, the teachings of the Buddha, with the breath, with a breath of freedom, he once commented of the whole range of meditative processes, of the whole range of meditation objects. He says, I don't know of one which can be so useful and such a marvelous resource for immediate insight and liberation. Just to sit on the earth 
and breathe and see what unfolds. May all beings be in touch with themselves. May all beings be in touch with life. May all beings know a breath of freedom. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.